Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am Michael Columbus, your host with from Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And we've got a great show for you today. We've got Dan Preciata here from Equity Strategies Group. And Dan, um, you'll notice uh, he's on the Family Wealth and Legacy um, uh, website. You know, he's a partner, he's a mentor, and uh, a great resource that we have available to us. And I wanted to take some time to allow all of you to get to know Dan and understand a little bit about, you know, his M&A world and the investment banking world and what it means for family businesses. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. Pleasure to be here. So we have a tradition with new, you know, as a guest comes on, tell us about your background. And, you know, like I always say, nobody, nobody ends up um, waking up and being, you know, who they are today. So what was Dan's journey to get to where you are today? Sure, sure. So I'll be happy to share that with you and your audience. Um, I actually started my career as a CPA with PricewaterhouseCoopers. And it was a great background because I learned a lot about business structure, taxes, accounting and auditing and so forth. But I felt somewhat restricted in terms of what I could do for my clients. So I migrated into the financial services world and joined a large national firm. And when I came in, I actually came into a management role and helped build a fee-based financial planning department. I ran a business. I hired people. I fired people. I trained and developed people. I was responsible for profit and loss. My compensation was based on profitability and so forth. And I did that for about 16 years. It was a great run. And then I, I kind of woke up one day and said, you know, this is, this is fantastic, but really my passion is working with clients one-on-one. -on -one. I was always kind of once removed because I was supporting and working with other financial advisors, but I was in the trenches a lot. Um, they brought me out to a lot of client meetings, particularly where, you know, the accountants, the attorneys, the bankers were involved. I did a lot of seminars and public speaking and so forth. Uh, but like I said, I really, my passion was working with and serving clients one-on-one. -on -one. So um, at the ripe age of 40, I started my practice. You want to know how many clients I had, Michael? Um, Not many. <laughs> okay. Tough at 40. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, took the plunge uh, being entrepreneurial. And I was very blessed and fortunate. I built up a clientele and a following uh, fairly quickly. Uh, wrote a couple of books that you are aware of, uh, and, uh, and, and I was fortunate enough to, to earn the respect of my fellow financial advisors, accountants, attorneys, who became just excellent referral sources. Um, and, and, and the way I really got started with Equity Strategies Group was it was born out of demand, because I would meet with business owner clients. 
And they would ask me, you know, Dan, can you help me to develop and implement an exit strategy? Now, many of my clients like yours are family businesses, but there are a number of business owners who, you know, either they don't have children or their children are not interested in the business or their children went to, you know, university and then became doctors and lawyers and, you know, were not interested in the family manufacturing business, let's say. Um, or simply, we had owners who were looking for a liquidity event. And they said, I'll take care of my children in other ways, but I've had a nice run and I'd like to kind of cash out and move on. So out of, out of really client demand, can you help me? That's where Equity Strategies Group was born to a point now, and we've been doing this almost, uh, gosh, 17, 18 years, blink of an eye. Uh, and we have helped... I mean, literally hundreds of family businesses, either with family succession or a third party liquidity event. We are completely objective and agnostic. It really is based on the client's goals and needs and so forth. Uh, but that's, that's how it got started. And that's how we kind of got to where we are today. Right. So we're going to dive into everything in a second, but I want to hit on two other things real quick. Mm -hmm. Just kind of give a equity strategies group, you know, what... It, it, when people talk about M&A, when they talk about investment banking, what is that, that rainbow? What is that, you know, what does that look like? What are the, the variety of options that you guys, you know, bring to the table for, for clients? Right. So, you know, what, what we do, and I have several partners around the country as well and staff, it's not just myself, right. but what we do is I think because we've been doing this a fairly long time and we understand businesses and family businesses is we do a lot of, um, asking intelligent questions and follow on questions and trying to connect with our business owners to really kind of go deep and understand exactly what they want to accomplish. You know, what's their definition of family uh, wealth, of financial independence? Uh, what do they want to do for their kids? Uh, what's right for their business, their employees, their community? And in that sort of questioning process, we gather a lot of information that then leads to, you know, oftentimes we're working with another financial advisor or sometimes, you know, I'm working with them directly. And what we'll do is collaborate, build a team and then implement a plan that, that's most effective. Um, as I said, if it's family succession, we can help them go down that path. If they want to go in a different direction, we'll educate them as to, certain things like an ESOP or a third party sale. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more, Michael, but you know, that, that's kind of, I think what sets us apart is the fact that we're objective, we're agnostic. We don't walk into the room with an agenda, uh, which I think is different. Uh, it's really based on our clients' goals and objectives. Yeah, no, it's what you just said, I think is an interesting point that we want, I want to make sure that people get is that agnostic piece because you know, I have spoken with a lot of business brokers right. and when they walk into a family situation where there's the possibility that maybe we need to develop the leadership from in the next generation and there's a desire to do that, but maybe just not the skill set yet, that business broker really doesn't have any desire to do that. Um, That's right. And I tease business brokers and investment bankers all the time, you know, when, when uh, your only tool is a hammer everything looks like a nail, okay? Right. But luckily guys like you and I, Michael, can kind of sit back, ask the right questions, get to know our clients and develop a plan that's most appropriate. 
Perfect. I appreciate you setting the, the foundation for us here. So mm -hmm. you wrote a book called One Way Out. Um, yep. You wrote two books. The other one is Defend Your Wealth, both available <laughs> for, for you out there. Take a peek at them. But walk us through kind of the, the premise of One Way Out so that, you know, you kind of tease people if they want to go out and, and grab it. But then I want to dive into the process, you know, behind it and whatnot. Sure, sure. So my first book I wrote in 2011, which was Defend Your Wealth, which was really targeted towards um, um, individuals have, who had accumulated a lot of wealth, whether it was, you know, within their business, or maybe they were executives at a company, and they were very concerned about how do I protect this wealth that I've worked my entire life to achieve and pass it down to my loved ones or to charities. And that was terrific. And then as, as we got more focused on the family business aspect, uh, this idea of one way out, you know, kind of a play on words, right? There's multiple ways out of a business, but what's the, the right way, the one way for you? So um, again, it was really to satisfy a demand of baby boomers approaching a point in their lives where they're saying, hey, I've got to do something. Right. And and we talk to, to business owners all the time about, you know, and, and, and I'll even kid around when I'm doing some public speaking. You know, I'll ask the audience uh, how many business owners are going to exit one day. You know, obviously a trick, a trick question. One hundred percent of business owners will exit one day. And I also jokingly say either vertically or horizontally. So, you know, this is something that every owner must face at one point in time. So. I wanted to build sort of a roadmap for them. You know, what are the steps that, that we need to take leading up to that decision? What are my options, or as I call them, exit paths? And there's five, and we'll spend some time on those five. And how do I determine which of those paths is the best one for me? And then also included in the book is, hey, you know, between here and the decision to exit, once we've selected the right path, you know, there's 100 things that could happen. 99 of them are good. And, you know, one or two maybe are not so good. And how do I protect my business? How do I grow my business to maximize value and or ensure a greater uh, sense of success uh, if I pass it on to my children? And then lastly, I couldn't resist, but I had to put a chapter on wealth preservation, right? So, <laughs> and I think it's even more important for business owners because, what you and I see all the time is much of their wealth is, is concentrated in that business. Uh, as much as 80 or sometimes even 90% of, of an individual's wealth could be in their business and their business real estate, which makes them especially susceptible. I think one of the greatest threats to the family business remains the federal estate tax, right? So the day you walk out, the government walks in and they want almost half. So, you know, how do you deal with equalization issues when you have children in the business, children not in the business? How do you even ensure the continuity of the business if, if the IRS, the U.S. Treasury comes in and says, okay, what's your net worth? You know, over an exemption, give us half. And as I'm sure you and many of your viewers are aware and listeners are aware, uh, we are embroiled right now in a debate uh, in Congress as to what's going to happen to the federal estate tax law. And it looks like the exemption is going to get cut in half. So I think it's, it's a growing problem. And, uh, and these are all the reasons why 
I wrote One Way Out to help business owners make that crucial decision. Got it. So the One Way Out is, like you said, a play on words that there's more than one way out, but you need to know the right one for yourself because yeah, yeah. every family's different, right? Every family business is different. And, you know, Absolutely. one of the things, the concepts that I talk about with families all the time, Dan, and, and you joked about it with the horizontal ver vertical, you know, piece mm -hmm. is that we are finite. Human beings are finite. The leader of the business is, um, is, is finite. If you, th if you change your thinking and get it straight, the business is infinite. Yes. So, and so, you, you know, it's, it's until you start to realize that the business is an entity all of its own and that it needs to be treated. That's why it has its own tax ID number, right? That's why it has, it is its own entity mm -hmm. and it can be infinite if it, you do kind of the, the planning and the thought-filled thinking that you're talking about when you go through the one way out process. Exactly. I mean, certainly it has the potential to be infinite. But, you know, you know, the statistics, they're frightening, Michael, you know, two thirds of family businesses don't make it to the third generation. And, you know, the and the question becomes, well, why and how, how does my business not become a, a fatal statistic? And yeah. I think a big part of that is is the state taxes. But moreover, it's leadership succession. It's retention of key people. It's managing the balance sheet and the profit, profit and loss statements correctly. So there's a whole host of ingredients that go into a successful succession plan, if you will, to keep it in the family. Great. So you talked about, you know, there's five exit paths. Is now a good time to, to move into the five exit paths? Or is there anything else about the process, the one way out process you want to hit on? Yeah, let me, let me take a, a couple of minutes on the process because I think this is something else that's critically important. What I find is some people will resist the planning or put it off or maybe even be lulled into a false sense of security. Well, gee, you know, Dan, I have an accountant. I have an attorney. I've had it all done, right? And oftentimes they have the ingredients of a succession, a succession plan. They have a will or they have even a buy-sell agreement, right? But the ingredients does not necessarily mean that there is a holistic, well-coordinated plan uh, that hasn't been stress tested, that hasn't been really kind of thought through or revisited in some time. So I think there's no replacement for going through a process. As a recovering CPA, I can say the CPA is critically important. The attorney is critically important. But I think what's most important is to build a team that works collaboratively on your behalf, right? So I often tell my, my clients, if it's the Smith family, okay, we're gonna put together Team Smith and we're all here. Your advisors should be speaking to one another. The right. left hand should know what the right hand is doing and there needs to be a process that's followed. It's, it's real quickly, I, I prescribe to a, uh, subscribe to a four-step process. So step one is discovery, you know, data gathering, data analysis, understanding about the business. And, and I think another part that's interesting in our process is there are plenty of personal financial planners and advisors, and there are corporate advisors, but very rarely did the two kind of marry up. And, and part of what we take pride in is bringing the personal planning and the business planning together because they do intersect. 
So under this heading of discovery and data, yes, there's going to be a dive into, okay, let's read all of your wills, trusts, tax returns, business agreements, et cetera, financial statements, and that's critically important. There's another side, which is understanding, you know, your, your emotional readiness. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when the student's ready, the teacher appears, right? So if, if you're not emotionally ready to tackle this decision of one way out of succession planning, a lot of it's gonna fall on deaf ears. So we need to kind of get a sense of emotional readiness to exit and it's fine. Not everyone wants to exit now. You may wanna exit five, 10, 15, 20 years from now. There are things that you need to be doing and thinking about. And then also your financial readiness. So looking at your other resources, your, your, your assets, your liabilities, your sources of cash flow, uh, to some expense, even, even your expenses. So that comes in step one, discovery. Step two is kind of crunch the numbers, right? You need to put together some type of financial condition model or database where you can play some what if scenarios, right? So, you know, what if I want to step back? I hate to use the word retire, right? What if I want to slow down and take more time for myself at age 60 versus 65 versus 70? Well, what does that look like? Am I going to be able to maintain the same lifestyle, especially if I've been running a business all these years, the business is paying a lot of expenses. Now it's all on me. You know, what is my life? Do I have to give up any of that lifestyle? Um, so crunching the numbers is very important. And again, on the business side, what's my business worth? <laughs> what we find is when we speak with business owners initially, their estimate can be off by as much as 50%. And it could be high or low. So someone now my business is worth 10 million. Well, it could be five, it could be 20. How did you arrive at that number? So let's, let's understand where that number came from. So step one, discovery. Step two, crunch the numbers. Step three is design. And this is where we utilize all the resources within our firm. Uh, our in-house, if you will, attorneys and financial analysts. Uh, in my case, our network of investment bankers. We work with 20 of what we consider to be the best middle market investment banks and M&A firms in the country. And they have industry knowledge and expertise that is just off the charts. So that helps us with the analysis. And then step four is the critical part, which is the action plan, right? Because Michael, you and I know that the best plan in the universe is worth nothing, you know, if it's not implemented, it's not worth the paper it's written on. Right. So it's having an advisor who has a bias for action, who's going to, you know, co-pilot and, and, and work with all these other advisors, again, whether it's your accountant, attorney, investment bank, uh, commercial banker, to make sure that the plan you put together actually materializes and gets implemented. So I wanted to touch on that four-step process. Let's let talk me, about... Let, yeah. let me jump in for a second, because there's a couple things I want to make sure that people when you're listening sure. to this, that you, that you pull away, because one of the things I, we just started working with a, with a new client recently. And what mm -hmm. he said to me is you, to me, to him, we all mm -hmm. sound the same. So you just went through this four step <laughs> process that I'm going to, right now, I'm, and I apologize, Dan, but to a lot of people, it sounds exactly the same as every other financial advisor. And so, right. so what, so I want to make sure that people understand what's different. Um, so number one is getting all of the advisory team together and creating that team that yeah, 
uh, it's over and over and over again. If you if the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, the attorney might come up with a great plan to restructure the businesses, but have no idea what the tax consequences are in doing that. And if the attorney, the accountant, and the financial advisor, you know, the insurance person aren't all talking together, there's no way for them to know. Number one, and the way I like to use and talk about it is. How do I know, how do I ensure that the team is utilizing and creating the highest and best use of the client's assets, whether it be the business, their, you know, investment assets, their insurance assets, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one that I think that is, that is gigantic. And I can't, I can't stress it enough how often I'm working with one of my largest clients right now. They hired a new, a new accounting firm and it's a great firm and they have one of the best attorneys that I know of technically. Mm -hmm. It took me three emails and I finally had to ask the client, is it okay if I copy you in to get the attorney, the accountant to answer me back to say, hey, give us an update of what's going on. Where are we all? Because I wanted it on one email so that everybody could see what's going on so there's no surprises you, you follow me exactly Absolutely. this is a big year for us because we don't know what's going to happen next year and there are a lot of people that are making plans and here we are middle of october and i'm dating the the time but you know you get to the end of the year and it gets a little crazy sometimes so there's there's number one mm -hmm. number number two I, I, it's really important that the agnostic piece Okay, it's, mm -hmm. you really need to make sure that there is that quarterback in the center that doesn't matter whether they want to help you build your leadership team and help you to think those things through, build the next generation up versus selling the business. Um, I think that those are critically important pieces. And the last thing is, you can really tell, you know, you're, you're a, mm -hmm. a solid financial advisor if they're not asking to see the wills, the trusts, the tax returns, your business financials and your buy-sell agreement or operating agreement, if they're not asking for the paper documents, the odds are they're only interested in assets under management. And I don't, you know, I'm, I know I'm putting, you know, calling some people out, mm -hmm. but in Rochester, what we just started, Dan, is something called the, the Planning Professionals Network. It just launched in, in October. The whole idea is to get all the planning professionals together and start going through case studies and get them used to collaborating. And so mm -hmm. we did this because, you know, we, I'm tired of the, the, the lack of collaboration that is out there. And uh, we're just looking to, to break down those barriers. So Anything yeah. to add to that that I missed in you know being able to differentiate while I'm interviewing financial advisors, wealth managers, my team. Anything yeah. else to add to that? I, I think it's perfect. But you know, Michael, I sit here and as I listen to you and I listen to myself and I hear about all this collaboration, let's get the advisors. If I'm the business owner listening to this podcast, I'm sitting here scratching my head saying, Oh my gosh, I'm piling fees on top of yeah. fees, right? which is not necessarily the case. What I find is when we get involved, we actually save our clients money in professional fees. Right. Because we are able to work with the clients, kind of put together this blueprint. Here's the plan. We're working with the other professionals. And then when it comes time to implement, 
The other professionals can go right to work. The attorney can start drafting immediately. There's no, you know, let's let's step back and educate. And, and, and you know, all of that has been done. Yes, certainly we want cross-pollination of ideas. And, you know, the attorney is going to add their own little spin to the documents, which is, which is wonderful. But quite the opposite. We're not, you know, it's not like, oh, my gosh, I have three or four meters running. It's we're actually in the end going to save on professional fees and more importantly, get the job done the best way possible. You look back in time and I have clients say, oh my gosh, I had to spend money for evaluation or I had to spend money for a lawyer. Yeah, but we just saved your family $3 million in estate taxes, or we just saved you $150,000 in income taxes. So I just caution people not to let that, I, I get it. Nobody wants to pay fees. But don't let that be an impediment to not doing the proper planning. Agreed. Okay. Thank you. No, thank you. Okay. I missed that piece. No, no. It's all good. So, so to keep us moving along, we've got mm -hmm. the five exit paths. Can you just yes. point them out to us and let's let's talk about them and then we'll dive into, you know, how do we choose it? What's the best? Yes. So, right. So in one way out and in real life when I'm meeting with clients, um, I try to make life as simple as possible, right? There are essentially five exit paths. It's kind of like a game show. There's five curtains to choose from, right? So the first one is you can transfer your business, of course, to your family. The second is if you have partners or co-shareholders, you can transfer it to them. The third is your employees. Now, it could be your employees at large, or it could be maybe a handful of management people. Okay. The fourth path is a sale to an outsider, we'll call it. It could be a larger strategic company, someone in your industry or a related industry. It could be a financial buyer like a private equity group, and they're not all evil. There are very good <laughs> private equity groups. In fact, there are ways where you can do it, where we've done it, Michael, where the children, pardon me, mom and dad, you know, sell the business to a private equity group. And maybe they sell just a portion of it, don't have to sell the entire business. They take some chips off the table. They go to Florida, North Carolina, someplace nice and warm, and they can still have, you know, a say in the business, sit on a board. Their children can continue to work there. The culture is perpetuated. So there's a lot of different ways to approach those types of sales. And then finally, the fifth exit path is going public, which you know, honestly, not too many of our clients are in that position or even want to go public with all of the regulatory issues. And it, it, it's even a while before you actually get liquidity because the stock's, you know, restricted. So really, there's four main exit paths for the entrepreneurial business, the family business. Great. Now, all right, so I've got four exit paths. I've got my, my family. Mm -hmm. I have my, my leadership team, my employees. And I can sell it outright, right? Private equity group or investment bankers get together to, you know, so you know, put a match together. Right. How do I pick? I mean, yeah. I'm a, I'm a business owner. You know, what what do I need to do to to put that together? Yeah, yeah. So I always my default is family. Okay. So when I'm talking to a business owner. I'll ask them, do you have any family in the business? Oh, yes, we do. You know, Junior's working here. Uh, my daughter's working here. Uh, multiple kids. Tell me about your children in the business. You know, how long have they been in the business? What are their job duties and functions? 
How did they get along with your other senior management team? What are their aspirations? What conversations have you had with them? Have you made them certain promises? Or have they come to you and knocked on your door and said, hey, I wanna you know, one day be sitting in your chair. So we'll spend sometimes hours talking about that. Now, here's the interesting thing I find is, and I'm gonna disparage some other professionals, but I don't mean it that way. I think a lot of professionals that work with the family business automatically assume, oh, you have a kid in the business, boom, it's a family succession situation. And that may be the case. But what they fail to do, I think, is go deeper in that conversation. Tell me about your children. Tell me about you, your spouse. What do you want to do? Do you want a liquidity event? Then we get into a lot of the soft issues. And we get into their financial independence. Is there a value gap, right? And I know, Michael, you're familiar with that terminology. You probably use it on other podcasts. Okay, so if you look at all of your resources that are available to you and your spouse and you look at your lifestyle and whether it's, hey, I need 150, 250, 500, whatever your number is, or maybe it's expressed as, you know, a number. I need 10 million dollars, however you want to express it, an annual income need or a lump sum. Okay, how are you going to get there? So let's look at your other sources of income, interest, dividends, rent. Uh, consulting income, whatever it might be, and do some number crunching back to that. And are you going to be okay? And then it's okay. Look, if family is the path, great. Let's, let's go down that path and let's look at the best way to make that happen. How do we set up the children for success? I mean, I sit on a number of boards with families where, you know, we'll have the kids come to the board. So you're smiling already. And we've got an agenda and we want to talk about their training needs, their development. What do they need to do going forward? Um, you know, who are the non-family people who are key to the business? Where are they? Are we going to be able to retain them? You know, sometimes these key people say, hey, this is a family business. There's a little bit of a dead end for me because I don't have the same last name as you. So how do we retain and reward those folks? So there's a lot to be said. Last comment on that family piece is... Again, if family succession is the direction we're going in, well, how do we transfer the business to the children? Do we gift it to them? Do we sell it to them? Do we leave it to them under the will as a bequest? Do we sell it to them when we're gone through a family buy-sell? And how do we deal with the remaining unavoidable estate taxes so that the family business doesn't have to be busted up to pay estate taxes? And how do we deal with equalization where we have children who are active in the business and children who are not active in the business? So it, it's a big job. It can certainly be done, but it has to be done methodically and thoughtfully, and, and it's got to be implemented. We can't kick that can down the road. Oh, I'll address it in five years, right? Because five years never comes. So I'll share a quick story with you that you'll appreciate. So mm -hmm. when I talked about this, I... I probably have many advisors. I spend a lot more time on this growth side. And, yep. and, and what, I, what I've come to realize is in the family business, growing, you know, business growth strategy, what that means is creating a succession plan that's really stable and, and, and going to work. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, one of our top clients has been every time I talked about, you know, their business growth strategy and working through this stuff. They just kept pushing me away. They didn't get it, right? As soon as I started to explain to them that both of them are going to, you know, the, the father and son, 
they're both going to leave the business, whether they choose to or not. It's 100% guaranteed, but you need, you know, and that the business is, could be infinite. And that's what they want it to be because there's, you know, 200 employees. And, and they're like, you know, but we don't have a way to transfer. And I said, that's what I'm trying to teach you. And I've been missing it all this time is what I, what you do is taking that CEO and helping the CEO build a leadership team that's capable of making 80 to 90% of the business decisions going forward. And that transition of knowledge to be able to put that together and have the framework that we've created, that we've put together to help them to do that. We did a, our first, they, when they heard it that way, they're like, let's do this. We did our first kickoff meeting. At the end of the kickoff meeting over the course of the weekend, um, I get an email from them going, had I known this was what you were trying to do, you know, I would have done this five years ago. I think, and I, and I, it was really nice because for me, I think about things as business strategy. What they needed to hear and where, where, where they needed to be met was they needed to create a succession plan and build a leadership team. And they didn't know how to transfer the DNA from the CEO to the leadership team. And that's what I do is I help the CEO transfer their DNA and their knowledge to the leadership team to be able to run those things. So it's yeah. well in a family business too. Exactly right. The ability to communicate and to have frequent meetings with an agenda and deadlines, like you can be flexible, but, but you have to have some kind of a structure. Uh, Michael, I can't tell you how many clients, they just kind of, they, they, all that knowledge is in their heads. The business is dependent on them. They haven't figured out how to transfer the knowledge from their brain to their children and their key people. And now they're 65, they're 70, they're 75, they're 80. And you're not doing the kids any favors. Right. Um, and you're not doing yourself any favor. You <laughs> want to be able to, you know, enjoy life. There's a lot of deferred gratification, as you know, in building a closely held family business. And at some point you want to, you want to be able to enjoy that. Okay. So that's the first path. The second path is if you have partners and co-shareholders, the, the existence of a buy-sell agreement, a current buy-sell agreement, a written buy-sell agreement is critically important. And if you haven't had an independent review of it, meaning someone other than the attorney who drafted it, and, and I'm not impugning the attorney, but have a second set of eyes Look at that agreement every couple of three years because the tax law changes, business values change, personnel change. You know, it's good to keep that current. And what I find also where there are partners and co-shareholders, they tend to often be around the same age, which means they want to retire at the same time. We had a business that we were working with in the Midwest. There were 11 partners. They were all within two, three, four years in age. And one guy says, well, I want to retire. You buy me out. No, no, you buy me out. No, you buy me out. And, and there just wasn't enough cash flow to make all these internal living buyouts happen. So, you know, what did we do? We looked for, in this particular instance, and I'm not saying this is always the answer, but we looked to private equity to infuse capital. Everyone got their buyout and the company perpetuated with basically silent partners and a management team that the owners put in place to run it and serve their clients. So, you know, partners, co-shareholders is interesting. The third path is employees. And we have seen such an increase. We have actually um, 
closed this year four ESOPs, employee, yeah, employee stock ownership plans where you can essentially sell your business to your employees. So it's everybody, right? And they all get a piece of the pie. You know, there, there's different ways to do it. You can take back a note or it could be a leveraged ESOP where the ESOP trust brings in a bank, you get paid at closing. And now the company out of cash flow pays back the bank and then redistributes stock to your employees. And now they all have an ownership interest. You'll be amazed the effect that it has on your employees now when they become, in essence, minority owners through their ESOP plan. There are a number of amazing income tax benefits, estate planning benefits. We're not going to have time to go through it today, but an ESOP is something that is becoming increasingly popular. Uh, and I think when the tax laws change and capital rate gains rates go up and ordinary income rates go up, I think you're going to see a surge in uh, employee stock ownership plans. Now, just one other adjunct to that is you may have two, three, five key people that you want to see have a larger ownership stake. Well, since the ESOP shares are allocated based on payroll, your key, key people are more highly compensated, they're naturally going to get a greater allocation. But if you really want to jumpstart it, you can do a combination management buyout and ESOP. Mm -hmm. So if you have four you know, great executives and you want to either give them a stock bonus, a stock grant, or allow them the option to buy additional stock, that will jumpstart them and give them a greater share of the stock. Again, by sell agreement, all those things become very important. Love it. Real quick, I want to just go back to the buy sell agreement and then a comment on the ESOPs. On the buy sell agreement, one of the things that I noticed tripped up a lot of people is failing to put a real value or valuation inside the buy sell agreement. And so, you know, I just went through an experience where the there was family turmoil. They decided that they were going to part ways. They were, you know, looked at the buy-sell agreement and the family that was staying in the business um, was like, it says book value. That's all you're getting. And, and we were in the, you know, and, and the other person's like, well, book, book value, you know, just hired an attorney and book value doesn't hold up. So if you're, you know, just real quick, if you're buy-sell agreement says that book value is what you're going to utilize as the valuation of the business, more often than not, that number is not going to hold up um, properly. Is, am I correct in, you know? Yeah, book value in 99 out of 100 businesses, book value is not reflective of fair market value. So, you know, not only does it hurt uh, the shareholder or the shareholder's family who's being bought out, I would even question if it would hold water with the IRS. Because one of the advantages of a buy-sell agreement is to, quote unquote, try to peg value. So when the IRS comes in upon someone's passing and they go to levy the estate tax, we want to have a reasonable uh, value that the IRS is going to buy into. And I, I, they're going to come back and say, no, book value is really not reflective of fair market value. Uh, but I think what's even more important is the impact that it has on real life people. Right. What is what impact does it have on the remaining shareholders, uh, the family uh, at book value? A, a better approach, as you well know, Michael, is some type of a formula. And it's usually some um, multiple of net income or EBITDA or some other recognized formula. It could be discounted cash flow 
or it could be appraisals. Some buy-sell agreements could say in the event of a triggering event, okay, retirement, death, disability, divorce, whatever, you know, there's going to be an appraisal. And maybe there's two appraisals, and if they're too far apart, you get a third appraisal. Right. Uh, or there is a stated value in the buy-sell agreement. And every year, the owners sit down and say, okay, we agree on this value. We sign off. That's our annual meeting. Done. And if you fail to have an annual meeting, which happens once in a while, right? That annual meeting doesn't always happen. So there needs to be a backup formula that makes sense. So I tell you, uh, buy-sell agreements are more contentious and more fluid than even wills. I mean, a buy-sell agreement needs to be reviewed on a, on a constant basis, and it can be amended and updated as needed. Now, real quick, if anybody wants to dive more into buy-sell agreements, remember, there's an episode with, uh, of the Family Biz Show with um, Don Parkhill and, oh my goodness, uh, Paul Hood. Uh, Paul Hood's uh, written many books on, on buy-sell agreements and Don Parkhill has done a lot of work in the buy-sell agree in the, the business owner market space. So find that episode. M my comment on ESOPs real quick, and then I'll, I want to get back to where you're at. The, right now, one of the things that I think, you know, we need to be, you know, thinking about is the fact that whether it's an ESOP or a transition to the family, I still need to make sure that I have a strong leadership team because the ESOP, that's the biggest fear. So if I don't have a strong leadership team, then it doesn't, then it doesn't happen. You know, then it, they don't keep Absolutely. that. Going. And it depends. My retirement might depend on that. And that goes back to that conversation I said in the beginning where, you know, that CEO needs to be coached with the leadership team because the mm -hmm. CEO, that's not their job. They've never transitioned that data. They never, you know, taken that stuff. They were an entrepreneur. They got stuff done. They knew he or she knew how to run a business and how to make widgets or how to service a client like there was no tomorrow. That's what they knew nine out of 10 times. Training and teaching and building a leadership team that could run it themselves. That's, that takes a little coaching and it, it takes some outside help to do that. It takes outside help. It takes an investment of time and energy to do that. And I, that leads me kind of to the to the fourth exit path is I think where, you know, Michael, you were saying earlier, well, how do you determine which exit path is right for you? I think, you know, obviously, if the children are not interested in the business or if they're just great kids, but they're not quite, you know, uh, CEO material, um, it becomes obvious. But I, I see a lot of instances where owners, and I'm not casting judgment, I mean, it's fine, but, you know, their management team's been with them 35 years, you know, and in essence, they're all approaching that retirement age, and they don't have the next rung of management, and that's where they'll say, hey, it's time for me to cash out, you know, check, please. We're also seeing a lot of clients being opportunistic, and I say that in a positive way. They're seeing that the M&A market these days is just so frothy. I mean, buyers are paying exorbitant sums to buy closely held businesses. Right. Private equity groups are formed. They raise capital and their mandate is to go out and purchase closely held businesses. Strategic buyers, you know, they can grow their business either organically or through acquisition. And more and more, they're finding it's much more 
it's quicker to get to their growth goals by acquiring businesses. So we are seeing just outrageous prices being paid. I mean, frankly, Equity Strategies Group is having its best year ever this year. And, you know, we're seeing all these businesses getting sold and getting sold at such high prices. We'll do a marketability assessment when we're going into an engagement mm-hmm. to get our arms around valuation and ranges. And look, you never know until you go to market what it's going to sell for. But I got to tell you, <laughs> we're selling, these businesses are selling for, you know, anywhere from, you know, 50% to, to almost double what our marketability assessment, you know, averages have been. So we tend to be on a conservative, let's under promise and over deliver. Uh, but the market is, is increasingly hot. And I don't see that happening. That's slowing down anytime soon. Even, even if capital gains rates do go up, I still think that there is going, you know, it's about supply and demand. Um, I think that there's so much money, so much capital out there chasing so few high quality businesses that the demand for those businesses is going to continue to go up. Yeah, you know, you and I talked about in, in my last family business book club, we read Tom Dean's book, Every Family's Business. I know Tom. Yeah, Tom's a good guy. And so one of his philosophies is that every family business should be sold. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't be sold to the next generation, but his point was real simple, is if the next generation isn't willing to put their own you know, equity into the business, then they really don't have the belief of where they can take it. You know, that was what he was taught in his family. And so his three generations in a row built and sold a business. But here's the neat part is every time they built and sold a business, they captured that wealth. Right. Right. And so it was, it really actually protected the family's wealth because they kept buying, you know, or building and then selling, selling a business. So Right. You know, right now you're you're 100% correct. The M&A market is just on fire, and there are there are stories and things that are happening that you know um, it just it's unheard of nowadays. I've seen some of the numbers, and so this, even though you may have somebody that half-heartedly, I want to say, or even wholeheartedly says, "I want to do." you know, want to keep the family business going, it may be in the family's best interest, long-term thinking about two or three generations from now to say, maybe now is the time for us to tap out and explore what that, what that world looks like. That's right. And, and a little bit of outside the box thinking, you know, the sale of the business is, as you're saying, Michael, it doesn't mean the end of the business. Um, and Tom Dean's point is, is also, you know, it's the family wealth that's the legacy, not necessarily the, not necessarily the family widget manufacturing company. But we've had a number of instances where prior to selling, selling the business, and this is why you want to have some, some time, you know, maybe an answer is to gift some of the stock to the children or a trust for their benefit so that when the company is sold, there's proceeds going to mom and dad, there's proceeds going to the children, and that wealth is distributed. Or... You may want to sell a business in such a way that the children stay on in a management capacity. Maybe there's an employment agreement. Maybe there's an understanding with the buyer. We've had situations where we've had businesses that we're selling, and there might be five or six bidders at the table to buy that business. The seller doesn't necessarily always take the highest price. 
right? They might say, well, I like buyer B or C better than buyer A because buyer B and C are going to keep my children in management positions, keep my employees who have been loyal to me for all these years, not change the name of the business, not change the location of the business. So all buyers are, are not created equally, whether it's you know private equity, and private equity's changed a lot too. More and more, these private equity groups have hired operations people and family business consultants that will help stay in that business and manage it and grow it. So it's not, you know, black and white binary. Uh, if I sell the business, the family business is done. I, I, I don't believe that. I don't see that happening uh, unless that's something that you want to see happen, which is, OK, we're going to cash out and move on. And maybe the kids take their proceeds. I've had a lot of business owners, family businesses say, you know what, this business has become such a headache. You know, I'd love to start a simple business with my son or daughter. You know, there's the next chapter in our lives, the next phase in our lives that we're looking forward to. We're seeing things coming down the road, whether it's competition, regulatory issues, can't find workers, right? Uh, nobody wants to work anymore. So there's a lot of challenges that people are facing that with a liquidity event gives them a, a little bit of a breather and maybe they move on to the next chapter. So again, it's entirely up to the client, the facts and circumstances, the family values, that's going to dictate which exit path is going to be pursued. Love it. And I, I have a, a quick story to share. You and I spoke about one of my clients and we, we were working on getting them introduced to you to talk to you and mm -hmm. they refused. Um, and they, they knew me. Is that what happened? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they knew. <laughs> no, it was, but it was, they, their feeling was that they didn't need a broker that they, you know, they wanted to do it on their own. They knew their business better than any broker could ever know their business and it's just the way this business works, Mike. So this was a business that was valued in the neighborhood of, you know, north of $30 million. It was a nice family business. There was two generations working in the business. And, you know, and, and there was ownership, not necessarily all equal, but it was enough out there that, you know, at that, at a, at a 33 to a $35 million sale, everybody would have been a-okay. Yeah. They ended up selling the business for about $26, $27 million. Because why? And you know the answer to this. I knew this. I knew the punchline before you even said it was I'm cringing about how much money they're leaving on the table. Yeah. And, and, and also the distress it causes. And when someone tries to sell their own business, oftentimes confidentiality is breached. I mean, I could, we could do an hour on why you know, why you shouldn't be your own cardiac cardiologist or your cardiatric, uh, cardiological uh, surgeon. Um, I, I could give you a war story on war story. We had a client uh, about a year and a half ago, got an offer unsolicited from a competitor. And long story short, the offer was for $40 million. And uh, everyone agreed roundly, that's a great offer. The owner thought it was a great offer. The CFO, the accountant, the lawyer, everyone thought it was a great offer. We were brought in to do a marketability assessment. 
And we brought in several investment bankers and we crunched the numbers and spoke with the owners and we spoke with the advisory team and said, yeah, 40 million is a fair offer. That's a great offer, but we think we can do better. So what we did was we kept that $40 million offer warm and alive and quickly circled around the industry because the investment banker had very specific contacts and knew where to go and how to do it efficiently and created a competitive auction environment, right? So, you know, the old saying, if you have one buyer, you have no buyer, you have no competitive pressure, whether it's real competitive pressure with a perception of competitive pressure, we had real pressure. We created a bit of a bidding war the price went up to 40, 45, 50, 55. And our investment banker called the final bidders and said, this company is going to sell in the next 48 hours. Give us your final and best offer. And I'll never forget, one of the bidders said to our investment banker, where do I need to be? And he says, I don't know, but your, your number better have a six in front of it. So it sold for 62 million. Yeah. Did that client have any qualms about paying that investment banker his fee? I assure you, he did not. Right. And spoke with him. He says, Dan, there's no way we got to 62 million without the investment banker. So, yeah, I, I would caution if anyone is thinking about selling their business. You know, yeah, I, I agree. As entrepreneurs, I get it. And no one knows your business, your industry better than you. You're the five-star general. We'll bring you onto the field of battle when it's strategically optimal to do so. But you want to have an investment banker that's in the mud, in the fray, and is not afraid to be bad cop versus your good cop. I mean, there's so many ways to play this. Uh, but if you want to not only get the best deal, the best terms, protect yourself from post-sale liability, the list goes on as to why a professional investment banker who's been there, done that, really should help you handle that transaction. Yeah. But, but again, it's, it's all based on what you want to do. And if that's the path that's chosen, then you want to put your best foot forward. Agreed. Yeah, mm -hmm. and in my client's case, like I said, I, I could not get them to turn, you know, make that turn and understand it. They lost six to $7 million, maybe even more. Um, and, and the reason why they lost the money was because they weren't prepared for sale. And so that's the other thing that people don't realize that there's a, a preparedness that needs to happen to make sure they're packaged properly and the planning that goes into it, you know, their books weren't ready. They were a family owned business. They did their books a certain way. There were all of these little things that they didn't realize and, and the company just came in. They were professional buyers. They had bought other ones just like them, and they just kept dicking, you know. It's David versus Goliath. I mean, there's just so many things that can go wrong. And, and if the deal doesn't happen, now you got to live in the world with these people, and other people might know you're for sale. It's just not, it's not a good scenario. So anyway. So it's it's 12.55. We're coming to the end of the, the out, top of the hour here. <laughs> Parting thoughts, things that you want to, you know, want to add, and then when you once you've done that, if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to to grab those as well. Yeah, I, I guess my parting thought would be, as it relates to succession and exit planning, you only get one chance to do it right. There's no do-over. There's no mulligan. For many of our clients, it's the most important single financial decision they're going to make in their life. It impacts so many areas, areas of their life. 
Um, I would say, you know, it's, it's so important to prepare as far in advance as you can. Surround yourself with competent, objective advisors with a process and a proven track record to get results. Um, I, I think that's the most important thing. Um, and, and really, um, it's tough, I know, emotionally, uh, financially, to get your head around all the moving parts. But I think if you, if you do it methodically, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Uh, it doesn't have to be, um, uh, it, it, you certainly don't want to be in a, in, a, in a position where you put it off and put it off until it's just too late. So I think, I think that's the most important message is start on it as soon as possible, stay with it, and, uh, and I think you'll have the best possible outcome. Great. Dan Preciata, thank you for joining us on the Family Biz Show. I'm Michael. Thank you, Michael. From uh, Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And appreciate everybody joining us today. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with the Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy, LLC, is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.